probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is Todd Cameron from Outpost 31, the ultimate The Thing fan site. Right on. So thanks for coming back, Todd. Thank you for having me on the show. So Minute 14 begins with Gary and Copper uh, talking with McCready about taking off and heading to the Norwegian camp, and ends a minute later with the helicopter actually taking off and, and beginning to leave the camp. So I think um, this is one of those scenes that, that Carpenter kind of rewrote, it sounds like, and, and reshot to uh, make it a little bit more interesting and, and put McCready a little more up front in terms of the cast. So the whole, I think it's interesting, it's a subtle line, but that uh, when, when Copper says, you know, you know, if you don't want to fly Mac, we don't fly. And that's, but it's one of those things that maybe subtly or subconsciously puts Mac in a little bit of a, an, an advantageous position in terms of, you know, over the other characters, they, they kind of trust him, uh, which is not, not necessarily the case in the script. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And you can see definitely the antihero coming out in him. You know, he's reluctant to go, but he's going to do the right thing in the end. Yeah. Even if he uh, he cannot keep the the Norwegian thing in his head, he, you know, he keeps calling them. This is where he first calls them those uh, crazy Swedes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great bit of, bit of character building here, too. You know, he's you know, it's one of those things where you don't know whether he's doing that on purpose just to kind of throw a little bit of levity there. But yeah, this is definitely where you start to get a sense that he's kind of um, going to be the protagonist of the movie and the uh, kind of the central character that moves the plot forward. I also, uh, I, I like to uh, note that this is, I think it's in this minute at the very end. Um, it might be a little later when they're flying, but I think it's here where the, so after we cut into the helicopter, it's not actually Richard Dysart that's in there. It's a helicopter pilot dressed like him, obviously. But uh, at some point when they're taking off, uh, supposedly they, uh, the pilot gave Kurt Russell the controls. So as, as they're taking off, you can kind of see it wobble a little bit. And that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's Kurt taking the, taking the, uh, taking the stick, which is kind of funny to think. The helicopter, that's actually Nate Irwin. He did all the flying on the Stewart location. And I've been in contact with uh, Nate's daughter. Nate's passed away now. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I've been in contact with his daughter, Jackie Irwin. And oh, wow. uh, she, she actually has the hat. Um, that McCready wore in the film. John Carpenter gave it to her at the at the wrap of shooting in Stewart. So she has one of the most iconic props from this film, uh, as it's seen in almost. Oh, McCready's wearing it at almost every scene of the movie. So I mean, for her to have that, it is pretty cool. And she shared some photos with us. Wow, that's so. Yeah, I always wondered what what happened to that hat. That is one of the definitely one of the iconic props from the movie. That's great. We never expected to, to locate where the hat would be and to get an email from her and, you know, and, and start chatting. And, you know, I had some great phone conversations with her and we're going to be working with her on a future project, which is pretty awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Any um, any interesting stories about, about her dad uh, on set or anything like that? Well, uh, actually, what's pretty cool with, with Jackie is she has when she was up there on set, she was only 20 years old and um, she took a ton of photos mm. up there. And it's pretty cool that she's uh, allowed us to use these photos, which have never been seen before by anyone. 
um, and they're they're pretty pretty awesome. So you'll have to watch for a future project from us where you'll be able to see them. Yeah, that sounds great. That's very cool. Uh, I, this this is probably a good point too to bring up. I don't I don't know whether it was Nate specifically, but it sounds like some of the uh, some of the pilots were some pretty interesting wild guys on the set. Uh, mentioned uh, last week talking about the um, the helicopter exploding that one of the one of the pilots offered to crash the helicopter on purpose for the uh, to to get that shot and they were obviously a little hesitant to uh, to do that for safety reasons but yeah given given that and and handing over the controls to Kurt Russell as they're you know taking off and in, in this snowy wilderness is uh, you know definitely paints a picture of some pretty interesting uh, interesting guys flying these helicopters around. <laughs> I'd heard that story myself about the, the helicopter pilot offering to crash a chopper. And I wonder if that was Nate or, or the, I think it might have been the pilot they had up further north in Alaska up on, you know, mm. on the ice field. Um, I think that was the, the kind of the, the Yahoo, you know, <laughs> chopper pilot up there. That's pretty interesting. I, 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 the the helicopter stuff in this movie is very interesting for that too. And you know, I wonder too if uh, you know I've read too that this is where this movie is where um, John Carpenter got really interested in, in learning how to fly himself. And you know, shortly after the movie, got a got his pilot's license and learned how to fly a helicopter too. You know, I have to wonder if any of these guys, you know, showed him showed him the ropes a little bit while they were up there. I bet for sure. Um, I got some cool trivia on the helicopter. Oh, yeah. the, helicopter, the helicopter we see blow up in the movie is a real helicopter. It was one they'd gotten from the mine, which was just up the road a little bit. So it was, it was an old helicopter that wasn't used anymore, but it was a real one. And, and they definitely blew it up. And as you know, in the summer of 2003, um, when we went up to the site to find the site, we actually found the wreckage of the helicopter. Um, it was still just sitting there and uh, managed to secure the, the rotor blade from that chopper. Yeah, that's so. That's such a great piece of uh, piece of movie history to own. That's so gr- awesome. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. It was a day to remember. I'll tell you. Yeah, and it, it uh, based on you know, as people ha- who haven't seen it, there's a, a great the the video that you made about about the trip and everything is is on the it's on the Blu-ray for the um, for the movie, and um, so you can kind of watch see the pictures and 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 hear hear you talk about it. But uh, it's it sounds like it was quite a, an adventure just to figure out how to get it back too. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that documentary is a, a little um, slideshow that I narrated on the new Screen Factory Blu-ray coupled uh, back into the cold. Yeah, that whole trip, I tell you, that whole trip was just you know almost magical, and we got very fortunate that we actually located the site number one and number two. Yeah, we managed to bring a lot of stuff uh, back, including the rotor blade, which which was a 15 foot piece. A rotor blade from a chopper is 30 feet from end to end, and we had one half of it, so it was a 15 foot piece that we put in in the SUV from the dashboard out the back. And uh, as you know, you've got across the border, you know, from Stewart to Hyder, Hyder to Stewart, Canada, U.S. border. Um, I mean, it's not like a border like down here where you've got the, you know, 100 cars lined up. But, you know, we drove through the border and the guy waved us through and we had this huge rotor blade sticking out the back. And, you know, he didn't even bat an eyelash at us. So. That's pretty funny. When you guys went up there, did you did you know that that was was still going to be out there, or were you just kind of you know oh, looking man. for any piece of of uh, of the of the movie? We had no idea. We didn't even know if we were going to find the site correctly. And um, we kind of went up there the first day and on Friday. We got up there, and um, we were in town, and it was supposed to rain. And the lady said, "You better go up right away." So we decided to push on. It was only a forty five minute drive further, and it was still fairly sunny and nice and warm day. And we drove up there, and Steve Crawford, my friend, uh, he was just a whiz, this guy. Uh, amazing, amazing man, and he taught mathematics at a university in South Carolina. Came up with some amazing essays on the film, the maps, of course. And, I mean, he, he printed all the behind-the-scenes production still photos from the original Blu-ray. 
and you know brought them up in a binder and and he spotted it right away um we were kind of a little you know disoriented the first 15 minutes up there just kind of driving around like on the road and steve spotted it immediately and he said there it is that's it that's opus 31 and i was like <laughs> wow you know you get the binder out and holds it up and sure enough you can clearly see where they've leveled with gravel a rocky plateau that they built the outpost on and there's kind of these overgrown old you know at the time 21 year old roads down onto the site from the main road where they'd of course you know brought all the construction materials down and and we found it and when we got on the site you know there was scattered remains of the camp everywhere burned pieces of wood painted gray i mean there was no mistaking that it was outpost 31 but we found the chopper of course the chopper wreckage and uh we also found the bases of a couple of the um the, the radio antennas that you see around the camp there's five very large antennas, like 30, 40, 50 foot antennas. Wow. And wow. they poured real, you know, concrete bases. And those were real radio antennas that, that they'd put up. And obviously when they were done, you could see that they just cut them, but the bases were still there. It was kind of cool. Yeah. That's so cool to see. I mean, just, just to know that that stuff was, was still there after all that time, you know, is, is, is really, really cool to see. And a fan went up just last year. Um, so Steve and I went up in 03 the first time fans had gone there and a fan named Peter Abbott went up last September uh, and he found it as well. He had a couple of Skype chats with me the week before he left and he, he came all the way from the UK um, to go oh, wow. there. Yeah. Crazy career halfway around the world. Yeah. And uh, he located, located it successfully as well. Found the site and the chopper and everything. His pictures and our pictures can all be found on the website. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, have, have links to that for people to check out. It's it's a very cool thing to see, and and the landscape up there is just beautiful based on the you know the pictures from when you went. Um, it's uh you know even if even if you hadn't found the the side of the camp, it looks like it would have been a really great trip. That's that's so true. Like even if the thing aside, just going to that location as a trip on its own was was literally jaw dropping. I'd never seen a glacier before, and the size of it was just absolutely stunning. Um, they call it Canada's Grand Canyon, and uh, it's the fifth largest glacier in Canada. But because of the mine and because of the, the access road, um, the viewing is spectacular. Like you're literally right beside this glacier that's a, that's a mile wide and ten miles long, and you can see the entire thing. Wow, yeah, that's pretty pretty incredible. Computer, how likely is it that one of our guests may be infected with the intruder organism? One hundred percent. Great. In that case, what are our chances of survival? Projection. If guests make it to other podcasts, all of iTunes will be infected within 27,000 hours. Yikes. Well, how long can we keep this up in the meantime? Projection. Without listener support, the generator will be destroyed in less than 24 hours and podcasting will be impossible. If only the radio wasn't down, we could reach the mainland and tell the listeners to go to thethingminute.com and use the donate button in the bottom right of the page to help out. Projection. If listeners go to thethingminute.com and use the donate button, chances of the podcast survival goes up 75%. Windows, keep trying. Yeah, so this is where they're about to kind of fly over that again and, and see a little more of that, but... The the other bit we do get in, in uh, minute fourteen of the movie is uh, cutting back to the inside of the outpost and seeing uh, Knowles and Palmer, you know, watching them take off and, you know, you know, one, surprised that that Mac agreed to do it. And you know, I, one thing I wondered at I, I didn't notice until watching it through uh, watching the minute again yesterday that uh, I wonder if the window they're looking out of it seems like it might be the same window that uh, Gary broke earlier. Is that am, am I wrong about that, or is it maybe the one right next to it? 
both those windows are in the rec room, and the one that they're looking out of is a little further down from the one Gary broke. Gary broke the window over by the by the bar, uh, and okay. Nulls and uh, Palmer are just looking at the one across from the ping pong table, which, of course, underneath it in that in this minute is is another great shot of Jed just yes. doing his perfect perfect imitation of a dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is one of the first. Uh, you know, obviously, we, we know that there's something kind of mysterious going on with the dog, but you know, up until this, uh, up to, until before this moment, you know, you you know, as somebody who hasn't seen the movie before, could easily think that you know the dog wasn't doing anything wrong, that it was the the Norwegians, the crazy Swedes, um, <laughs> that right. uh, that you know had something wrong with them or, or had gone crazy or you know whatever. But this moment is where you first get kind of that hint that the dog is is was really what the danger where the danger lied. So yeah, we get that great shot of Jed sitting under the ping pong table. And um, this is another example of, you know, that kind of independent filmmaker sensibility that rather than just cutting to that, that, that whole part is one shot moving from Nalls and Palmer looking out the window and slowly moving down to, to see, um, see the dog under the table. It's, it's very eerie. And, and the way the dog looks kind of, he looks kind of afraid, but also, you know, the way he's kind of looking up at the window, almost like he knows what's going on and, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great shot. And, and again, you know, this is one of those times when, uh, you know, Carpenter, I think was very thankful that they had such a, such a great, uh, actor in, in Jed to be able to kind of get those things across. Yeah. It, it definitely establishes the kind of, uh, the creepiness of the dog right from this moment forward. Yeah. It's kind of throws you off because the dog initially in the first few scenes we see him, including this shot, he shows no threatening display at all. Like mm-hmm. you said, he almost looks a little concerned, you know, in, in that scene. And uh, yeah, that's all one continuous shot. So I'd love to be watching that scene, you know, as a background observer and seeing how they did that with the, probably the trainer was probably right there, you know, having the dog stay there and as they, as they pan down onto him. Yeah. I mean, this is one of, one of the first times when, um, you know, just watching it as a movie, you don't really think about it. But, uh, you know, as a person on set, it must have been pretty difficult to pull off, too. I mean, uh, e- you know, either di- very difficult to pull off or the dog was just exceptionally well trained, which it seems like he was to be able to kind of have that, you know, where people are talking. And, and you know, there's obviously a whole camera crew that we don't see moving around and all that. And, and you know, the dog is, is just kind of a perfect actor for the scene. Which is interesting because I've read that it was a young dog. Jed was a young dog at the time, very young. And he hadn't had any experience acting in, in a movie. Um, and even he was new with the trainer. The, tra- the trainer, Clint, was, was new with him as well. So they really didn't know what to expect at the beginning. But I tell you, boy, did he ever pull it off and hand him the, uh, the canine actor Oscar award goes to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. Jed is such an important part of this movie, too. And um, yeah, there's, uh, we'll, we'll get to some other scenes later on where it's just even, even more impressive. And it sounds like they, for a lot of this stuff, they trained for months, especially, um, with, uh, with Richard Mazur who plays Clark since he spent so much time with the dog, but yeah, it's, it's always just kind of mind boggling to see the stuff they're able to do it. And especially given the, all the obstacles and problems they were having on set, it's, it's kind of a wonder that they, you know, uh, it's a testament to Carpenter's resolve, I guess, that they, you know, went ahead and did these, you know, did these shots rather than trying to do something a little simpler, um, you know, with, with the way they could cut around it and everything like that. Yeah. Jed went on to do some other bigger movies too. Not as big as the thing, but he did a couple of the white Fang movies, which I think were Disney movies. And then he did another one called the journey of Natty Yan, which I think was possibly another Disney movie, but uh, he was in a few other movies and he was equally as good. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to think, but I, I feel like I, I want to, I need to check these movies out just specifically for Jed. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever watched, a, you know, watched a movie specifically for an animal actor, but that, but, you know, if I did, that would, those would definitely be the ones to do it for. Yeah, and, and, and Jed was, uh, uh, I think he lived to be 18. So Jed's, you know, obviously not, not with us anymore, but um, yeah, such such an important part of this movie. And, you know, even he's only in the first, you know, 30 minutes or so, but um plays such a crucial role in, in kind of setting the tone and uh, and and building the story. Um, so this would, might be a good spot since we're getting close to the end of the week here to um, just to talk a little more generally about Carpenter as well, because, um, you know, obviously I know you're a huge fan of the thing, but I don't really know that much about uh, your thoughts of his other movies and things like that. So, um, <laughs> w- yeah, what uh, um, what other Carpenter movies are, are kind of among your, among your favorites? Um, I enjoy Halloween. I'd have to say that's probably my number one after the thing um halloween i enjoy i enjoy the fog um i just actually watched escape from new york again last week i hadn't seen it in years and i really enjoyed it halloween the fog escape from new york i even enjoy starman i i believe i have all of his all his movies assault on precinct 13 is is a very solid film Mm -hmm. i can appreciate uh big trouble in little china i wouldn't say that i'm a fan of that movie i've had a lot of trouble there's a few carpenter movies to be very honest um very blunt i've had trouble getting through them that's not a good sign, at least for me. But I, I tell you, um, the thing for me, is, you know, is, is so far ahead of his other films that I can't even really personally relate Carpenter and Halloween and Carpenter in the Fog to the thing. Thing just, thing is is definitely his masterpiece. Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely my my favorite of his movies. You know, although I I have a lot of fondness for for a lot of his others too. But you know, as we talked about a lot last uh, yesterday, that um the just kind of the happenstance of you know having this director who's you know pretty brilliant and and had some really good experience on the independent film circuit and had you know created some really interesting movies getting this bigger budget and all this uh and and getting all these people involved who had who had done you know before and after who have done some amazing things guys like Dean Cundy and John Lloyd and Albert Whitlock to get all of the you know it's just kind of the perfect you know perfect timing for all those things to kind of come together and create such a such a great movie you know, and I, I, I wonder, too, if, if there was a, a slightly even bigger budget than he had and more time, because he was under a very big time constraint, especially wrapping the final bit of the movie. Um, I wonder what would have happened, like, you know, if Carpenter at that time and that age, in the mind frame he was in back then, if he was allowed to do the scene, like the lights out sequence and, and the chase onto the ice mm-hmm. after the dog with the snowmobiles. If you read those in the script and especially the novelization, they are incredibly eerie, creepy scenes like what he could have done with that material, you know, as, as in the film. Yeah. It's, it's, that's definitely one of those things that, you know, will always be left, left to wonder and, and, you know, just how that would change it. I mean, you know, like we talked about in, in some ways having those things not be in the movie is adds to the mystery, but yeah, it'd be great to see what those would look like, especially that the chase in the ice. Um, I was just reading about that yesterday with, you know, the way they had planned on doing it where you're only seeing bits of these, of this monster flying around, you know, in the headlights of the, uh, um, you know, the tractor and everything. It, it sounds, or of the snowmobile sounds, you know, terrifying. And, and, you know, I can picture it in my head, but uh, yeah, it's one, one of those things that we'll always, always be left to wonder about. Yeah. So I think that would probably cover us for, for minute uh, 14. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, uh, to mention? Uh, no, I think we've got it covered there, Harper. Cool. So, um, 
yeah, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. But in the meantime, uh, make sure to check out uh, thethingminute.com as well as our Facebook and Twitter account under The Thing Minute. And then obviously, of course, uh, if you're listening to this and you have not been to outpost31.com, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you got this far. But, uh, you know, definitely check that out. The site's incredible and has tons of amazing resources for, uh, for fans of the movie. So make sure to check that out and, and come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out. Harper, signing out.